0: Shut up and sit down. Welcome to the Edu Third Space podcast, where we address the important questions. What is education? Where does it occur? And who gets to decide? Welcome back listeners. Today I am speaking with Dakota Poliki. Dakota currently works for the Lumina Foundation, although he has wide-ranging experience in the education sector, Um, working for Chicago Public Schools previously, and like I said, currently the Lumina Foundation, um, which he will describe his work a little bit more in this episode. We mainly focus on the development of partnerships in formalized schooling. Um, We do talk about partnerships outside of formalized schooling as well, mostly related to um, entry into higher education, work-based learning, uh, things of that nature. And we talk about the future of education and the future of work, just in general, but also considering the current state of affairs that we are going through, which is the COVID-19 pandemic. So we kind of bring together my original purpose of the discussion, which was just community partnerships with both Dakota and I's interest in competency-based learning and what that structure could mean for education moving forward in general, and like I said, considering our current climate. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please go to www.eduthirdspace.com to donate, and please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen, and write us a review to help others find us. Hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, Dakota.
1: Hey, Sam. How are How's you? doing? I'm good. I'm good, you know, staying at home and saving lives as mayor lightfoot keeps reminding us all. how, how about you <laughs> right right
0: <laughs> doing well same right. although i'm used to staying at home so not too much has changed for me but
1: yeah here you. Well. i just mainly try to keep out of my wife's uh, hair who who stays at home and is working on her phd so this is more of me uh interrupting her probably balance and flow than anything else in the world
0: <laughs> <laughs> well well i understand as her and i are both working on our dissertations that's right that's right yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're just going to get started with you kind of giving an overview of your history and education, experience working in the field of education up to this point, and what you're working on now.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, um, you know, I right now I'll start uh, with my current role. So uh, I'm a strategy officer for community mobilization at uh, Lumina Foundation. LUMINA is a private foundation based in Indianapolis that focuses on uh, education and training after high school. Um, So yes, it's about college, but it's also about workforce training. It's also about uh, military credentials, anything that, you know, people um, learn uh, that happens after high school that allows them to participate in their communities and their workforce and and life. And my my work there really focuses on leveraging local and regional cross-sector partnerships to help drive post-secondary attainment. Um, it's a mouthful, uh, but, you know, how I got into this work, uh, you know, previously, I started out as a music teacher uh, in Chicago, uh, in, in Chicago Southside at Lynn Blue Math and Science Academy, uh, but quickly moved into teacher preparation, and uh, I worked for Illinois State University, where we ran uh, urban teacher preparation immersion programs. Uh, the big difference um, with that work was that, you know, a lot of teacher preparation programs, you go through your four years of college, your however long it is, you get your credential, and then suddenly you student teach and then you start in your classroom. Uh, But for a lot of urban schools uh, that might lack a true pipeline, sometimes people's first time they're actually in an urban environment or an urban community is their first job. Uh, And they're not always prepared to teach uh, in a community that they're not familiar with. And so uh, we did a lot of community immersion. We had our uh, teachers, uh, while they're still college students, living in host families uh, on the south and west sides of Chicago they worked uh, part-time in community-based organizations that focused on the social safety net things like housing and uh, you know jobs and unemployment all sorts of different areas uh, as well as getting early uh, pedagogical experiences in the classroom and so that really is the part that um, I think launched my career in this like orientation around community and regional partnerships Uh, and from there I ended up working um, at uh, went back to Chicago Public Schools and uh, worked in central office um, where uh, I served kind of a dual role. Uh, I was in charge of uh, partnerships and uh, strategic projects for uh, an office of college and career success. Um, So again, really working with a lot of nonprofit partners, city agencies, universities and colleges, all of us coming together and say, you know, how do we actually make a good local ecosystem work uh, for students to make sure they get the education they need? Um, And so uh, I brought that skill set to Lumina. And so now I have a chance to uh, work with over 100 different communities around the country, uh, all that are bringing multiple sectors together uh, to focus on making sure the people who live in their communities get the kind of education they need to be successful.
0: Great, great. Thanks. So before we go kind of further into um, your work and partnerships, can you just broadly define education? how you see education?
1: This is like a crazy (laughs) question. So when you (laughs) sent this question to me in advance, I was just like, oh boy, like how crazy we want to get, because listen, I'm a pragmatic person at heart. Uh, I'm a doer, Uh, but don't get me wrong. I'm also an armchair philosopher, like every person (laughs) in education. So I'll start with here. Um, You know, one of the more influential things I've read on that topic is from Philip Jackson. Um, He was a philosopher, I think out of University of Chicago. And uh, I actually pulled up his definition. He has a short book called What is Education? It's about like 100 pages, really worth to read. Um, and he tried to, when he was studying with Dewey, John Dewey, he created a nine-word definition of education. And then later in life, uh, revisited it because he thought it was just really unsatisfactory. So his definition is this, education is a socially facilitated process of cultural transmission, whose explicit goal is to effect an enduring change for the better in the character and psychological well-being of its recipients and by indirection in their broader social environment, which ultimately extends to the world at large. So uh, again, it's a mouthful, but I'll say that, um, that that his definition has been the one I think that's really uh, stuck with me the most um, uh, when you go back and look through all the theorists and, and what we have today. So for me, though, uh, in the practical realm, I think what that really means is like education at its root is an opportunity is the mechanism by which we transfer our values, our knowledge and our skills to other people, uh, and in particular, oftentimes to the next generation, right? I mean, it's, it's the process of how we help the next generation do better than us. Um, And I think when you talk to uh, parents, or even if you think back to, Uh, education prior to there being formal education. It was just the oral history of passing stories down. Um, It was all an effort to uh, let the next generation do better uh, than we did um, and and to learn from our successes and failures. Um, So, you know, I think it's also um, the other way to look at it too. It's um, Education in, a, in its modern manifestation, in the sense of that we have schools and institutions mm-hmm. and policy, for me, it is a moral enterprise that we pursue as a society um, that really protects and uh, strengthens our communities. Um, you know, education uh, in and of itself, yes, is a is a pursuit, and I, and I will never deny that. But the practical application of an education. Uh, is one that allows someone to participate in the society that they currently belong to. Um, and so sometimes that does mean brass tack kind of you know, competency-based education, uh, things around um, you know, both soft skill development, the liberal arts, as well as hard skill development and trades. Uh, and so it is, um, I think the word moral enterprise is really what sticks out to me most. Uh, as we consider the application of education um, in, into our community environment.
0: Okay, great. Yeah, that's how interesting. That,
1: yeah. How <laughs> did you answering? I don't no, know. That was a stumper. I, I won't lie.
0: Oh, that's great answer. Yeah, I used to ask um, <clears throat> my students this at IU, and because they get kind of you know they're in teacher prep programs, and so they get a little dumbfounded when I'd say because I would ask what is education and what is school, and it's like but they're the same thing. And I'm like, whoa, but are they the same thing? I'm like, you know, it's not a trick question, but you know, I, I personally want people to think more about that, which is why this podcast exists. Um, yeah, so kind of going back to, well, speaking about these students that I taught, they were preparing to go to the Navajo Nation um, to complete their student teaching. And so there we would often talk about, or in our classes, we would often talk about culture. And cultural transmission and that was kind of my point of asking the difference between education and school because in the Navajo Nation they certainly are not the same things you learn a lot of things at home that you do not learn at school such as their you know culture and the history of their culture and the traditions and everything that goes with that so in your work with communities and kind of like uh, developing an education system that, you know, like you said, advances the values and knowledge um, to better the next generation. How do you see formal education achieving that compared to what a community may desire out of education?
1: Yeah, you know, so one, I'll say that um, I think Formal education, and, and if and if what we're saying, what we mean by formal education, are the institutions and entities that are typically uh, responsible for uh, delivering uh, education in a structured environment, receive tax dollars to do that, and are also regulated and accountable according to you know various policies, right? If that is what we mean by formal. Um, I think uh, we're fortunate to live in a system and environment where actually the formal uh, education system is part of and responsive to communities, right? When we think about uh, folks that are encouraging uh, people to become active in their communities or uh, launch political campaigns, one of the first things you hear people say is go run for your local school board, Mm -hmm. right? Mm
0: -hmm. We
1: have local school boards. So there is a clear connection between community values, community priorities um, and their schooling. Um, I think that's where the a lot of the hot topics um, that get debated, at least on a national stage uh, historically and currently, uh, that's where the rub actually meets. You take oh. like an old, you know, I think it was like back in the '90s, early 2000s. It's come up a bunch of times about like prayer in schools, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the reason that's such a hot button debate is because there is a um, there is a, a historical precedent that education lives at the local level. And so yeah. what happens in the classroom should reflect what's in the community. And if you happen to live in a community where 100% of the community says, listen, we wanna allow prayer in schools, um, you know, they feel uh, that they should be allowed to make the decision. Um, and so the, I think where the challenge becomes is where we have multiple layers of authority, uh, mm-hmm. multiple layers of um, regulating bodies that then uh, get to um, you know, supersede mm-hmm. the local decision, the local community decision. And, and to be clear, I'm not making an argument for one way or the other. I mean, I think, there's, that's, I think the fact that our system is set up the way it is to create those kind of tensions is important uh, because there are things that are of national precedence uh, that matters. Um, as well as um, from a state section a state level and a, a community level and so uh, the fact that we're forced to have these conversations I think is the right thing I think what's right though is that we have those conversations um, so yeah I think that's uh, I think that's the real intersection that rub there um, I think the other thing this gets into though uh, as well as you know there is a really good question about what should or should not be the limitations of our formal education system. So, uh, you know, we can pick out really specific and unique examples of saying, you know, the transmission of culture, the transmission of values and traditions um, might, the, the formal system of education might not be the best vehicle to, mm-hmm. uh, to transfer those things. And it's probably not right of us, um, us being the, you know, whoever Decision makers mm-hmm. uh, to uh, place um, uh, place schools and institutions uh, at the responsibility of transmitting those kinds of things. The other side of the thing, uh, the other side of this conversation, though, is that if they don't, who will? And you run the risk of of um, of there actually not being enough kind of cultural education um, or value-based education being provided. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at elementary schools, they do a lot of character education, right? We, in, in particular at the elementary level, but uh, social-emotional learning skills um, have permeated all the way through higher education now too.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so to me, that is actually another manifestation of cultural transmission because uh, our social-emotional learning kind of topics are... Um, really oriented in a lot of Western values a lot of times. And so it is a way for us to nationally say, hey, listen, these are the kinds of things that are important to us uh, that are based in kind of culture and tradition.
0: Okay, so you, you know, mentioning going back to school boards. um, So you worked in a school district that had an appointed school board, not an elected Mm -hmm. school board. So what tension, if any, did you notice between the community, what the community wanted out of um, Formal schooling, specifically, versus what the board wanted.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, in in Chicago um, and other large urban school districts, um, I personally, you know, I, I, I yeah, I'll go on the record. I, I think I think an appointed school board is actually uh, more effective in larger school systems. And um, what I mean by more effective is that they're able to actually get more things done than a lot of elected school boards that are at that large urban level. And here's, here's one of the challenges. Um, the first thing I'll just say and then move quickly away from it is that <laughs> there are a lot of local politics and um, there's an awful lot of money that gets poured into local politics, particularly in large, large urban areas. And so if it were an elected school board, um, the, the power dynamic, um, I don't believe, actually gets returned to the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know what's worse or better and appointed I don't know which one is better or worse at representing the community appointed or elected when you know that there's so much power and money at play uh, with elected school board positions uh, I think that we would run a greater risk um, and I can I've, there are many examples that point to that as well uh, throughout the country there's a, a university I work with right now who has a an elected uh, an elected uh, board of trustees and I mean they got upset because one of the uh, members, you know, uh, <clears throat> spouses is like tied to this hospital and the university president decided to not partner with this hospital. And so now they're trying to like remove this really good university president just out of this kind of, you know, small key political spite, And so there's real risk to that. Um, so, uh, you know, I'll, I'll move off of that point though. I, I think the second thing I'll say is um, in a large urban area, I think it is really difficult to say what does the community want for mm-hmm. education. Um, you know, every, you know, I think there are uh, people who want. Um, uh, of course, I think there's very few people who would say they don't want a strong public school system. Uh, because a public school system uh, that is strong, that provides high quality education, uh, that can meet the needs of of every student um, in its city, actually helps the city overall. It helps your economic development, uh, it helps your talent attraction efforts, make sure you have the kind of people and resources you need to attract business, to attract further investment, you know, you need that. Um, You know, where we get uh, where we get stuck at when trying to assess what a community wants is uh, there's so many sub communities uh, along the way uh, that trying to operate a large urban school district with six hundred schools that serves almost half to, almost half a million students um, that 's a really big community
0: mm-hmm. and
1: so um, I think what 's incumbent is that um, that there's actually multiple venues and vehicles for the district to take a differentiated um, approach to serving community needs Uh, and that can't be reflected on the board there's just not enough board seats you know Chicago has over 70 different unique communities uh, and neighborhoods in the city Um, you know I think local school councils are really important for that reason Uh, and that is where community voice really matters is at that individual school level and that's where people can go and uh, you know be elected and uh, you know make some changes at their local school level and i think that's the appropriate level in that context that's that's where you have to channel that down um, what, what's regrettable is that um, since local school councils were developed uh, they have not received the same kind of funding and attention uh you know uh, by the city uh, as they had historically and so we've seen an erosion in in participation (laughs) participation and erosion in their duties and responsibilities and so i would advocate in that kind of context really strong local school councils that are elected that are at the community level uh, that have the financial backing of the city uh, resources that are promoted and that have a little bit more power and authority over what happens in their individual school including hiring and firing decisions for their administrators um, that, so this way the, uh, larger school district board can be focusing on system level issues. Um, that's going to change when you're dealing with different size communities, you know? I mean, if we're, if we take this out of a Chicago context and we're talking about a smaller, you know, community that has, you know, the community I grew up in in Illinois, mm-hmm. you know, we had two high schools in the district. Yeah. Okay. An elected school board makes sense there. Uh, you don't need that kind of local, Hyper localized approach. So I think it's about uh, making sure the community has uh, the point is that the community has some kind of voice that is heard and that that voice um, isn't just perfunctory or performative, rather, that um, there is a a formal process um, that um, they can engage their community and inform uh, what happens in their schools um, and, and that they have the power and resources to make the kind of change they want to see.
0: Yeah um and that makes sense and hopefully I'll be talking to uh someone <laughs> who also lives in your house about local school councils <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah at some point
0: <laughs> I should
1: I should probably cite yeah. her at this at this juncture because yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. her you know she's yeah she's done a lot of writing about this so yeah. yeah
0: yeah so that to me is an interesting dynamic you know because I am with you on I can't decide at the, you know, our major cities should have elected versus appointed. I can't, I also can't decide which is better because I study Los Angeles and man, let me tell you, it is crazy politics there. You know, their last major school board election where multiple people were running $14 million was poured into that election. And a lot of it was not from people who live in LA, you know, so There are some give and takes, you know, when real estate agents, you know, dominate your board and things of that nature. It's mm-hmm. it's hard to decide which is better or worse. Um, but thinking about, you know, you talked about local school councils, but have you seen other initiatives? And we can move a, a little bit away from just K through 12 schooling, but other community efforts or efforts where the community has come together, however that's defined, kind of. Um, not necessarily dictate, but direct um, education priorities.
1: Um, yeah, so there's a lot of um, efforts around um, the country of where uh, communities um, and, um, oh, well, yeah, communities have come together to uh, kind of change uh, and service the education ecosystem um from a definitional perspective i use the word community um a lot and Mm -hmm. by that i mean anything as small as like a neighborhood and there are places that we work with that are uh as large as like you know 18 20 county regions that border three different states Mm -hmm. and so to me those are all communities um and so we we work with a number of partnerships and uh that are coming together um yeah the the point is is that um there's a lot what most of these folks are doing are working um, in the unofficial actor policy space um, and they don't necessarily have a formal power in the sense of like a role structure that uh, or another way to look at it is that they don't they don't have um, you know they're not elected officials uh, they're not appointed officials they're, they're people from the nonprofit sector the private sector uh, the social sector as well as government coming together under a shared Uh, a shared table around shared goals and around shared priorities. Um, There are, of course, uh, really important folks, we call them backbone staff typically, um, that help coordinate this, right? And it is all about coordination, collaboration, and integration. And these are all communities that have uh, come together and answered uh, trying to answer a very fundamental question, which is what can we do together that we can't do alone? Right, when you talk about um, trying to make sure a community has the education um, uh, and talent they need to be successful, that is not, no one sector can actually accomplish that goal. If, If we just say, hey, schools, go figure it out. Hey, education sector, go figure it out. We're gonna fail. Right It does take the private sector uh, involvement it takes the nonprofit sector's involvement, and it takes the government sector and so the challenge is that they can 't do all those things uh, alone either right We have major places where there's initiative fatigue that happens um, because you know uh, everyone's setting their own agenda they 're not communicating with one another, and then you uh, it 's really inefficient and actually hurts in the long run. So, uh, you know, there there are a lot of uh, really good examples of places uh, that have brought together folks uh, to say, yeah, you know, here's how we're gonna collaborate. Um, How that functions works differently in every single uh, community. And and we can get into some specific tactics and examples. Um, You know, but what I'll say is that um, the, the main vehicles and tools these folks are using is really around that kind of power to bring people together to convene um and uh talk and share uh it's it's kind of like a public accountability section you know and i you know when i was in chicago i participated in a lot of these uh and i knew that when i went to this meeting today and i'm going to be in front of my you know uh, colleagues from different uh, city agencies universities uh nonprofits, researchers all all different kinds of folks and I'm asked to give an update on something, you know, I'm going to have an update on something Mm -hmm. because these are my professional colleagues that are saying, you guys should be, this is one way that we're holding you accountable. Um, And so there's, there's definitely an accountability, an informal accountability, a a community accountability factor to this. Uh, But it's also about sharing uh, resources in a lot of different ways. Uh, There's a, you know, at a very, very tactical level. There's a partnership in Corpus Christi, Texas called, um, uh, Coastal Compass, and you know they they're focused on trying to help adults uh, who left college without earning a degree, um, and these are folks that you know might have been out for 20, 30 years or two years, um, but they know that you know sometimes if you're someone and you're saying, listen, I dropped out of college for whatever reason, um, and uh, you might not want to go back to, you might be uncomfortable going back to the institution mm-hmm. to say, hey, can I come back in? You feel like you failed. So instead, they have a location in their mall. They love this mall. I think it's called like La Palermo Mall. I mean, but they love it there. Mm -hmm. And uh, it hosts proms and other stuff. It's a great place. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, they have an office there. And uh, people can walk in and get institutionally agnostic advising and say, hey, listen, you know, what did you do? And here's some options. What's your goals in life? You know, oh, here's this credential pathway. Here's how it works with your employer. The best thing is, is that the actual organization, this isn't some private organization that has to figure out and hire their own advisors. This isn't a, you know, it is a nonprofit, but they didn't have to hire up all these advisors, which is actually a pretty inefficient way to do this. Instead, they worked with their partners. And so each partner college sends one of their usual academic and financial advisors to their site once a week. And so it's sharing a very simple human resource to reach more students. And I know that's such a tactical, pragmatic way, but You can take solutions like that and expand it all over the issue areas that uh, education uh, ecosystems face. Um, So, yeah, there's a ton of examples of places that I think are rolling up their sleeves and figuring out uh, what they can do together.
0: Have you worked with um, partnerships or organizations that look to, so you gave a college example, um, So, more of a work based example, like switching fields. Like, you know, I'm thinking if coal miners go without jobs, do you know of places who consider um, workers needing to be educated in different fields?
1: Yeah, so there's a lot of really good examples. I would point mm-hmm. to places like Detroit, Nashville, Tulsa, Las Vegas. Um, I'll talk deeply about one of those just for a moment, because oh. otherwise we'll be here forever. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I think, you know, uh, each of those places have have done this thing where they've they've essentially said, listen, here here's where we're mapping. Uh, we're we're going to map what we expect for workforce demand uh, coming. And this is mm-hmm. particularly um poignant right now, given uh, where we're at with this pandemic and the kind of projections Mm -hmm. that we're expecting uh, with unemployment, right? And Brookings Institution has come up with some really good uh, data um, and and some analysis around what are some of the most at-risk industries. Hospitality, of course, is right up there, which is why Las Vegas, Atlantic City, Mm -hmm. uh, places like Nashville are concerned. Uh, And then, of course, you have mining, oil and gas, et cetera, and and a variety of others. so each of these places, what they do is they say, listen, we got to get together and we say, let's look at the data that we have. And here's what we're expecting actual growth in these individual sectors. Here's what our labor demand is. And here's where our labor pool is. Um, and then uh, it, it is working with a lot of um, non, um, non-institutional partners. And by that, I mean, these are the folks that are providing you know, a 10-week uh, certification program um, that, that allows someone to Uh, get what they need quickly uh, at low or no cost and then enter their workforce immediately. Um, It is hard, you know, it's tough because when you, the classic example of like, Oh, you know, we can't teach a bunch of coal miners to code. Yeah. Okay, fine. Maybe, maybe you Mm. can't. Right. Um, But, You know what? Coal miners know a whole heck a lot about hydraulics, for example, Mm -hmm. Um, and and a lot of other kind of really good fields. New America, my colleague Molly Martin has done some really great work, and she's from West Virginia, so I know this is like really Mm -hmm. personal Mm -hmm. for her. Mm listen, they can uh, be trained in other specific fields um, that matches what they're learning. And so it is really about working with uh, an ecosystem of non-institutional providers that are really good at saying, this is what you already know, we're just gonna give you a little bit more of what you need to know to pivot into the next next area. Um, So we see that in hospitality, Uh, that's a good sector Mm -hmm. to talk about this with. Um, A lot of uh, people who work in hospitality, um, they're kind of dead-end jobs. Uh, they're, they're jobs that um, don't provide a living wage and also uh, don't uh, have a future career ahead of them. You can't advance in those jobs. And so, what a lot of folks are doing is saying, okay, let's take a look at the kind of skills, knowledge, and, and abilities that you develop in these in these jobs, and say, okay, if you want to take that, here's where next you could go. And yes, it's going to mean potentially a pivot out of the hospitality yeah. industry, but it's going to be leveraging the kind of skills and uh, you know, abilities that you've learned in there. Um, and so Tulsa has been doing a lot of that really great work. Detroit's been doing a lot of that uh, re- really good work as well. Uh, Austin, um, you know, and I think even at a smaller level, um, other other manufacturing hubs, you think about like Elkhart, Indiana, um, who um, is primarily known for manufacturing. Of course, everyone knows them for RVs, but they manufacture mm-hmm. a lot of others. <laughs> And uh, they've done this a lot too. They say, listen, how do we help you progress from welder one to welder two to this next thing to this next thing? And so um, it's interesting, Sam, because uh, a lot of corporations have been really good at this for a long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Caterpillar is really good at training their, uh, their people internally to meet their labor needs, which is why they're able to grow and respond to new markets. The ball industry is the same thing. They used to you know, be involved in glass bottles and, and now are making uh, full-service satellite things and about to start launching their own satellites. How do you make mm-hmm. that jump? It's managing your own labor pool. Um, so this is really where uh, that kind of partnership element needs to come into play because there are people in communities and organizations and communities that are not formally recognized as education providers that do this mm-hmm. really well. The military is a whole nother good example we can talk about.
0: hmm Yeah, so that's two things you brought up are interesting. Uh, Well, lots of things, but two in particular I want to come back to, but we'll go with the latter first. And so one of my concerns with um, like the college pipeline and the kind of mentality of everyone must go is I feel like sometimes, or I try not to use the term I feel like anymore. So I think often what happens is people think that they have to go to college to get skills for the workforce, but there are, you know, then there's the employer. So you bring up a good example of like Caterpillar. I know John Deere does something similar. That's um, what my cousin went through. Do you think there's misinformation about that, or is it rare that employers have the infrastructure to train employees?
1: Maybe it's somewhere in between. So uh, I think first, when you're talking about major um, national or multinational employers like Caterpillar, Disney, McDonald's, Walmart, um, they have the infrastructure and ability to educate their their staff. Uh, but keep in mind, the vast majority of that education and training is going to be serving their own need. Uh, and I think that's I think that's entirely appropriate and that we shouldn't blame a company uh, for providing high quality training that resonates with their own goals and talent goals. Um, I think where the education sector comes into that is that we need to get less snobby about saying that that isn't high quality, right? We need to find a way to say, listen, what you learn there is valuable individual you know dakota what you learned on the factory floor is really valuable if you want to continue to get your associate's degree if you want to get a bachelor's degree um here we're we're going to take all the stuff that you've learned we're going to confirm that you know it you know either by recognizing a credential that you might already have say you have some kind of industry recognized credential uh, great we're going to say yep you don't have to take these courses um, or we're going to give you some kind of assessment if we don't have a method of verifying it And we're going to put you on a faster pathway because I'll tell you, when you talk to an adult uh, who uh, has a family of their own uh, needs to work uh, the idea of stopping everything or trying to go to school part-time is a, is is a scary and daunting idea. Like Mm -hmm. I barely want to go to graduate school. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and like, I, I work in this education space (laughs) and, and also my employer pays for it. And I still just like, it's just the time and effort, like all these things. I don't have kids, I don't have these other things. Those those pressures uh, extend quite a bit. Also, uh, Gallup and Strata has done some really good um, research and surveying around this, uh, where a lot of adults will say, listen, I'm not interested in education that doesn't directly relate to my, my career. Mm-hmm right and so i think that you're right that's where the misinformation piece comes in we have to make a uh, do a better job of connecting uh, education and education pathways uh, to uh, to the kind of uh, workforce um, um outcomes that people are expecting um, certainly i feel like there's a second thing i was going to mention for you um, and i'm trying to remember what it was i don't know if i answered your question the way you're were, you were expecting
0: you did, you did. Um and it but it was interesting for to hear you say that the work-based training is not seen as valuable um in some spaces. Like I, I really like your thought process about that this work experience should go towards, you know, what you're trying to do in college. Um, but yeah, I guess I was surprised to hear that it's valuable for that company, which is the whole reason that they can provide it, but yet it's not translated into value as far as a degree is concerned. Even though, at least I'm thinking like computer sciences in particular, a lot of what you learn in computer sciences is out of date by the time you graduate. And so you're gonna have to learn this stuff when you get on site anyway.
1: Yeah, I mean like the IT, the IT industry is the one who like really leads this way. And they were right. the first ones to say like, hey, we're going to abandon formal higher education. Uh, and we're gonna set up these boot camps and coding boot camps. And as long as you can, you know, I, I don't know anything about IT, but as long mm-hmm. as like, you know, Java and this and that and the other, and all the other really important things that are important to IT folks, then then we'll hire you. It's a very competency-based. Mm-hmm. That has started to gain traction in, in other arenas. Um, and I think that that's really where we need to be going. Um, because, because you're right, the, the flip side of this, too, is that um, I think a lot of employers uh, also don't really care about what degree you have anymore. Mm-hmm. They care very much more about uh, what you know and can do. Uh, and so uh, m- while that might not apply to uh, employers in the knowledge industry, um, you know, the vast majority of employers, though, aren't, aren't in that industry, and they're focused on delivering the most good to their client. And so, um, they don't really care if you have uh, a, degree, uh, a degree from some kind of institution if you can't do the thing that they expect you to do. Um, I actually remember what I was going to say earlier, too, which is about this notion of scale. So, certainly... Large employers can do this pretty easily. They have the infrastructure and the dollars. Uh, You know, McDonald's has um, Archways to Opportunity. It's a really great program. Uh, And they actually partner with higher education institutions to make sure there's a pathway towards a degree. Starbucks is doing similar things like that. Um, You know, so there's all these different programs, Walmart, Cigna, Discover, right? But I will say that a lot of medium size and small size businesses also do this. Um, I was talking with one um, hardware uh, company uh, they they're in the IT sector but they i can they they produce like enough hardware everything up until the software portion that's how it was described to me and um they have a whole structure figured out uh, i mean they have i think 60 employees and they have a whole, um, you know, promotion structure figured out that allows you to say, listen, if you want to get on the job training that we provide, um, here's the next step, here's how you get promoted, here's what our next need is, here's what our next need is. Uh, And what I was trying to help them do is connect them into a community partnership because what that CEO said is like, listen, we do this because we need it and it's good for our employees and we want our employees to get better. Like we want our employees to have higher degrees as well uh, because we know getting a degree is actually associated with a lot of other uh, a lot of other positive life outcomes and a degree is much more transferable if someone if someone was getting laid off from that job and they try to go to another company they can't show them a document a transcript that says here's all the things I have learned that employer the next employer has to take their word for it or do some kind of assessment whereas if I walk in and I have a degree in something it is a universal proxy for my knowledge, skills, and abilities at something. And so that's one of the challenges we face. They wanna provide those employees with that kind of security, with that kind of future, because mm-hmm. it's their home community too. The problem is, is that you're busy running a small business. You don't have time to go and uh, art, you know, create articulation agreements with a bunch of different faculty at the local mm-hmm. college, like you don't have time. So that's where these local partnerships have to come into play to be that connector, to make it easier for everyone. Same thing with academics. They don't have time to go to every single small business um, and, and, and make these articulation agreements. They have to have something that works for their scale. And so, again, that's why you have to plug into these local partnerships with a convener who can bring these folks together and you know, provide some capacity and do some things on a scale and an efficient way uh, that allow both education and workforce sector to reach its mm-hmm. goals.
0: That's interesting. So in Chicago, you might have been involved or at least uh, familiar with the initiative that they were doing with um, digital badging. So the Summer of Learning which I think transferred into something with the school year. I can't remember what it was yeah. called. But anyway, so this idea that at least within Chicago, they had this one system that could show that you had mastered XYZ skill through your digital badge. Do you see that? I don't know the status of that these days, but do you see that as a way to show multiple different employers and institutions that these skills are recognized? Um, or is that just? too big for a community
1: partnership to take on? Um, so yes, I think badging uh, is a really, uh, can be a, an effective way uh, to um, uh, communicate uh, the acquisition of uh, knowledge, skills, and abilities. Um, but here's, here's some challenges, right? Um, there are already, I think, it, uh, I can't remember the exact number, uh, but it's over 700,000 credentials. Um, in in our current system and that's going to include degrees bachelors and associates but also workforce credentials certificates certifications badges micro bachelors micro associates we're we're coming up with all these different ways Mm -hmm. it is impossible for an employer for a college for literally anybody on earth or any organization to make sense of it all except Mm -hmm. for one uh, organization called credential engine because that's what they're trying to do they're literally Mm -hmm. trying to build a, a national database of all these different credentials, um, and so they they they're really good at, at this kind of stuff. And so the problem is, is that you can get a badge for uh, learning how uh, to use you know we'll use coding again. You you can earn mm-hmm. a badge that certifies that you know how to use this coding software this coding you know methodology Uh, you can earn a badge uh, that says listen you've been osha certified in safety or you completed you know some kind of basic carpentry work right you can also get a badge um for you know um gosh i'm trying you know drinking the most water i mean you know and i know that sounds ridiculous but the the thing is it's like that's the challenge with badging is that it's really really hard to determine quality. Uh, It's really hard to determine, um, you know, what is actually included in that badge. Mm -hmm. Now, if we had a system of competencies where we were able to say, listen, here's the badge, and within this badge, you mastered X, you know, Mm -hmm. A, B, C, Mm -hmm. you know, competencies, then that makes a little bit more translatable and and someone could know it. Someone could say, Mm -hmm. here's an, an array of badges. We just, when we came up with the badge concept, We just went crazy and started badging everything, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And and so we need to, you know, we need to get uh, the right things in place, the right data and technology infrastructure in place. Uh, We need to get the right kind of standard competency language out in place. And there's already a ton of frameworks. People just need to start using them Mm -hmm. um, uh, to make sure that those badges actually matter. Because I agree with you. I think it makes not that you made a statement. I think Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, uh, yes, if we were able to get You know, people who provide education and experience and training uh, to provide these kinds of badging and badges and that they actually made a difference, that they actually were uh, translatable and understood by everyone else, that would be a really effective way for us to move forward. The problem right now is just we're drowning in in them all um and they change by place and by region um and you know it's it, it's tough I and mean, a lot of our transcripts even aren't even machine readable you know so yeah, yeah. if you think about the literal like if you want to get a transcript from your institution you know or even your school you have to like order it. You have to pay mm-hmm. for shipping and handling or whatever else. They send you a piece of paper. You upload it. Someone else has to download it, look at it to make sure you've done stuff. And even still, we're not looking at competency alone. You're, we're looking at what courses you took. We're mm-hmm. looking at how long you're in education. That doesn't tell me anything. It tells mm-hmm. me that you stayed in school a long time. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, very expensive uh, so,
0: pieces of paper.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, and so we need to, you know, catch up with the times a little bit and say, listen, you know, all these things can be backed down to competencies, and uh, we should just have this kind of competency-based system uh, that allows people to demonstrate the learning, and that would really open up the marketplace of badging in a in a much more high-quality way.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think about, I mean, competency-based learning, we could, like, have a whole separate episode about this, because that's something I think about a lot. Like, how do you know what I know? And letter grades, to me, don't cut it. Like, you know, this particular professor graded in a certain way in this class that I took that you have to read the title of and gain something, you know, out of what exactly this class covered. Um, So, yeah.
1: I mean, in K, you know, in K twelve, um, you know, a lot of times grades are used as um, grade behavior. Mm-hmm. So there's participation points, there's attendance mm-hmm. points. So if twenty five percent of your grade is, you know, did you show up to school? But you're dealing with chronic illness, or you're dealing with a family member, or you're, you know, you have mobility issues. You just fail the student. Congratulations. Whereas competency comp- based education really allows people to demonstrate what they, you know, no one can do pretty well. And it's funny, you know. Um, the, there's a lot of folks that say, listen, you know, competency-based education sounds too much like a workforce thing. Like what about the value of learning? The the folks who have been doing competency-based education longest are the liberal arts, you know, and I, Mm -hmm. and the fine arts. I joked all the time. Like I was a tuba player in college. I basically studied tuba. I was music ed, but um, you know, I, I had to, like, I had to go through a thing called a 200 level exam where I sat in front of my faculty and they would throw out different, you know, scales and exercises and stuff, and just said, can you do this? And if you didn't do it, you failed and weren't able to progress to 200 level coursework. And I failed it the first time, you know, because I wasn't prepared. I had to go back and develop my competencies mm-hmm. in specific areas and demonstrate those competencies. And that made me a 200 level person. Mm-hmm. Like we've been doing this forever. Um, so, you know, I am really hopeful that we, we move uh, to a competency system. Um, because it really needs to translate and uh, luckily the online environment actually facilitates that process a little bit easier than the in person class instruction
0: mhm yeah, that's a great point about liberal arts because my sister was a. Uh, she got her bachelor's in fine arts, and so she had to, you know, show her paintings and be evaluated on her paintings and show that she's improved over time um, and that she's mastered these certain skills. And it seems much more like. Ho- I would be able to hold myself much more accountable to something like that than if I turn in this paper to my professor, who I know just doles out A's anyway, and I don't have to, like, you know, necessarily prove that I've mastered anything, but I do have to regurgitate what you have taught me in class, basically.
1: Yeah, prove yeah. that you've something.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that's a great yeah. point. Thank you for bringing that up. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah. So something that you mentioned going back a little bit um, was the current time that we're in. We're all pretty much on lockdown because of a pandemic. And so I've been thinking a lot about what is an essential employee. Um, So it seems like in your work, you've been thinking about like, you know, what is going to come out of this? Who's going to end up unemployed? You know, what what are they going to need or, you know. To transition into a new field or things of that nature. Um, so it seems like you've been thinking about that. Like what kind of advice would you give someone say that's in high school? This is what I've been thinking about um, as far as career trajectory.
1: Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think one, um, I think it's really hard to know what your career trajectory is to, at, at such a young age. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I think that's why it's important to uh, kind of develop uh, a broad base of skills and skill sets mm-hmm. um, that are transferable across a lot of ind- different mm-hmm. kind of industries. Um, the, the nice thing is that, yes, like when we look at the future of work and really what we're also talking about here is the future of work accelerated by a pandemic. Um, and um, you know, I, I was, I've talked to some, some really smart people about the future of work, uh, kind of and stuff and very you know slight fear futurists and all that. Uh, as a human race, we're terrible at predicting things. Uh, and if you know there there's some scholars have gone back uh, and looked at um, you know news and scholarly articles and all the different projections of every time humanity uh, w- within recorded history um, has had some kind of massive shift you know, some kind of future of work conversation mm-hmm. presented themselves and every single time they got the prediction wrong right there's a hundred different predictions with a hundred different you know prescriptions for everything and so what what does uh, what actually does stick though are, are a couple things. One is that what we're talking about is a slight shift in the um, human work environment. You know, we're not all going to get replaced by robots, um, no. and certainly not at a time where the pandemic. Like I'll tell you, companies not right now. Like oh, maybe we can just switch over to robots. You know how hard it is to switch a production line over to robots. Like. No. First off, that's a massive financial investment, but it takes you years to like figure all that out. It's not an overnight thing. So um, don't worry, you're not going to be changed by a <laughs> robot. But you know, um, we we might look at the ways that automation and AI and, um, uh, and other efficiencies, uh, particularly some that might be more rapidly uh, being experimented with under this current environment, will change our work moving forward. Uh, but what that doesn't change though is the kind of basic skills and knowledge and abilities that humans have to do to interact with that kind of environment Uh, and so um, still developing numeracy and literacy skills uh, if you're a high school student uh, will get you into whatever career that you end up doing you know Um, even if you end up working alongside of a machine um, we have to train people for life and career and not for a job and I think that's where we get wrong. So if there was a high school student sitting in front of me, I wouldn't ask them what kind of job they want. Mm -hmm. I asked them, you know, what do you like doing? You know, what, what are you particularly good at? What are some skills and strengths, right? Which I remember being asked that in high school, and it was the most frustrating question anyone (laughs) asked, because I was just like, I don't, I don't know. Like I, you know, right, right now I had some other things I was working on, the the, the way I was uh, raised and all that. But, you know, I ended up, Studying music ed because I applied to one college and it was the college my band director went to and I went into music ed because I liked band. And Mm -hmm. um, the only reason I got into the school is because it had to be a low enrollment year. And I was told it was the worst edition he had ever heard, oh. uh, but he needed numbers. And if I promised to work hard and I did, and then I got out and now I'm in philanthropy, like uh-huh. my career trajectory makes no sense to anybody, but all along the way, I've been developing skills, right? I've been developing leadership skills. I've been developing writing skills and analytical skills, numeracy skills that have carried me from place to place to job to job. And so I think that's the most thing that is the most important thing we should be doing right now is to say, don't put off your education goals, but also don't don't go and pursue one specific narrow job um oh. that uh, that may or may not exist um the other thing about the future of work conversation the reason that we get it wrong is because we don't know what the future jobs will be you know how could you train someone to be a you know web designer before there was an internet mm-hmm. and yet over the course of 20 years, look at the explosion of people that are in web services, social services, et cetera. I mean, you know, social media services, et cetera, right? Those jobs don't exist before. But those people did have the skill sets they needed to be successful in that. They have design skills, they have, you know, visual art backgrounds, they have all sorts of different kinds of analytical skills and knowledge and ability that allow them to succeed in that environment. Uh, and so that's my message, is is let's not focus on the loss of a job or a job area. Um, you know, we're not all going to be real estate agents anymore. That doesn't mean there's not a need for people in uh, travel and logistics and professional services. So um, I think that would be my advice.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and you kind of just made the case for competency-based education, basically, <laughs> you know, so that you can start, because even, you know, in high school, you can have a job just because it's not like your career, but you might be doing something that helps, you know, hone some sort of skill set that will be applicable later in life, you know, so thinking about competency-based education might be the way to go to set people up, because I also, you know, in. I maybe you experience this, people often push back against competence. Well, you were talking about this because it's like training for the workforce, school shouldn't be a place to train for the workforce. We need to focus on, you know, liberal, liberal arts. And you kind of got to this earlier that it's not different. Critical thinking skills can be developed, or, you know, this um, proving that you know something can be developed um, in a a variety of different ways that still align with competency-based education, lets people, you know, kind of explore their passions and things like that. So am I right that maybe our vision for education should be more competency-aligned, skills development? Um, And then do you have any other thoughts on how this pandemic and what is an essential service can kind of um, help us think about education in the future?
1: Yeah, I think we've actually been doing competency-based education um, throughout humanity. And mm-hmm. I think where we went wrong is that we ended up wrapping too much uh, policy, money, and infrastructure around uh, the, the basis of time. And mm-hmm. that's all. That's yeah. where we went wrong. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I don't understand resistors. of com- If you think mm-hmm. about competency-based education as a program, mm-hmm. then we're going to fail. It is not a program. It is not a, yes, there are best practices and things like that. And we have to unwind a lot of regulation in order to allow us to use that. But that's all it is. It's literally unwinding the way that we allocate dollars and that we hold education institutions accountable. And if we were to unravel those and put new ones in place that allow for counseling education, it's a much better fit. We've all been doing this all along. You know, when you're in math class, Yeah, you eventually get a grade, but that math teacher has to do all this crazy mental gymnastics, (sighs) uh, figuring out, like, okay, you've learned these kinds of skills, uh, and I'm going to weight this lesson plan, this unit plan on fractions at 10%, but this next one around, you know, I don't know, I'm terrible at math, uh, around (laughs) division or something, you know, like some other content area, and, and, and that's what teachers do all the time but that they do it via great waiting they do it you know you only have a certain amount of time so uh i don't think it's a i don't think it's a leap it's more of a mental model shift that we just need to get get over um so yeah i mean i do think it's a case for constant-based education because we've all been doing it anyway let's just call it out and actually change our policy around uh, to allow for this to happen in a more uh, in a more fulsome way um you know, to, to the how we're going to respond, though, to, to this crisis, I mean, one, I think we need to be pretty patient with a lot of the uh, agencies right now that are uh, serving individuals. And by agencies, I'm talking hired institutions, schools, uh, as well as local government agencies, et cetera. Um, there's a lot of folks that I think are very worried about the future, rightfully so. Um, and um, are expecting these places to pivot so quickly to serving every single kind of need they're going to need, as well as plan for the future. Um, They're still, I mean, every organization that actually serves people um, that I've talked to is still in response mode. Right, and not only are they trying to just figure out what is the best thing I can do today to help the people I'm supposed to serve. They also have to figure out how to serve their own people, they have to figure out their own, you know, their their own mental, uh, their own mental health issues that they're also facing, as well as their staff, as well as their constituent. I mean, everybody. And so we need to be a little bit patient. I think that's not saying hey, let's let's reduce the kind of um, um, uh, the, their accountability and responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, What that is saying, though, is that we need to not be impatient as we move into the recovery phase of this uh, to make sure we get it right. Because if we move too fast ahead and we start demanding too much of uh, particularly our public agencies too quickly, what we're going to get is a lot of uh, fast things that feel good that do us terribly in the long run. We're going to produce more inequitable outcomes. We're going to hurt people who don't have a voice uh, because we're going to choose the most expedient route, which is oftentimes not the best route. Um, I think also the other thing that I've uh, been noticing, um, and a lot of people have is like this, we are living in the age of localism, you know, Bruce Katz writes about this all the time, like we are, we are in, we are in a local environment now. And so what we mm-hmm. have seen demonstrated time and time again is that people are more reliant and more responsive to their local governments, their local communities, and to some degree their state than certainly the federal government, right? Um, we rely, we, we've seen so many mayors step up and try to do things that are above and beyond the... Um, the federal uh, certainly the federal reaction to this as well as the state reaction um, and this is a really good time for us at the end of all this to revisit things like the home rule uh, yeah. and, and revisit the way that um the interaction between local federal and state governments uh interact uh yeah there are some really great governors who have handled this really well uh, there are others that have done terribly um, and same thing could be said for for city leaders um, but you know, I think what this shows, um, uh, like in a lot of different individual sectors, it shows the fragility of of certain sectors, and there's been a lot written about this from the healthcare perspective. Uh, mm-hmm. But I also think it shows the the fragility of our current uh, political system uh, and how good it is at responding to local needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, I think one of the things I'm hopeful for moving forward is that we we do see more local-based leadership um and a, and a sharper investment uh at the local level to allow communities the and give communities the resources they need to respond to the recovery crisis the way they are because workforce is local you know uh, it, it is it is a local regional issue um so when we get out of this and everyone's allowed to leave their house again and people are going to try to go back to work and we realize how many businesses didn't make it through mm-hmm. um, it's not going to be the feds that's going to solve that problem it's going to be the the local governments who are trying to take care of small business and so let's make sure we're putting the money where it matters
0: yeah yeah i I would say that that is also i share that hope that is my biggest hope is one that people recognize how important the local government and businesses and things like that are but also really reflect on what they are doing for their local community Um, even if you work for you know a national corporation or whatever like what how can you serve your local community so like for me i would love to start a garden that would be one of my like growing food has it's become very apparent i already knew how important it was but it's become very apparent to me that supply chain matters and the further away it is from you the more destructive it could be in times like this. So so yeah, I share your hope.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, providing, providing basic services to people, right? It's mm-hmm. something that we've always had at the local level. Um, if we don't invest in the local level uh, and give uh, folks uh, the kind of flexibility they need uh, in regulation in particular uh, to respond to the recovery, then we're going to get it wrong. Um, and so I think uh, what state-level leadership and federal-level leadership looks like right now is getting out of the way, mm-hmm. is finding the ways that you can ease the burden on on local leaders. Um, and also, um, you know, uh, while I think everyone, I, I don't know enough about um, the economy to say whether or not direct to people, you know, payment mm-hmm. works or not. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to try to speculate on that. I think. I think it makes a lot of common sense, and I'm sure a lot of people are able to meet their bills, right? But, which is good, uh, and still keep the fridge stocked. Um, that said. You know, I think that there's still some concerns about, you know, uh, direct to f- federal to small business support. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, although there is, of course, risk by channeling it through local agencies, there's more accountability through channeling it through local agencies, mm-hmm. because that's where people are actually being elected. Your your vote matters more at the local level than it does at a federal level. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I just really hope that this is a time that we actually invest uh, in the places that know what their communities need, that have the accountability structure uh, that is is much stronger. Um, It's going to be easier for us to hold a local official and local agencies accountable for inequities in our system than it will be for the federal system. Awesome. Yeah.
0: Thanks. Yeah. Uh, So to just kind of wrap up, I mean, is there anything kind of talked about the community and partnerships in a more roundabout way as far as education is concerned, but we're, is there any points that you'd like to make about you know, your experiences with education and, and its ties to community and partnerships?
1: My, my, my big take is that um, if, if there's someone who's listening um, who wants to make a change in their education uh, locally, You have to do it through partnership. And there's not one right way to do this, okay? There's a lot of wrong ways to do it, but there's not one right way to do it. And there's a lot of uh, programs and providers out there that'll say, hey, you know, follow our model, do it this way, do it that way. Um, And uh, listen, I've seen uh, seen a lot of those models. I've seen them really successful in some places and fail miserably in other places. you know, some of all, you know, one of the questions we get asked a lot is like, what are the, you know, three most important things? Is it leadership or is it mm. resources or this? And it's like, you know, it changes by community. It really mm. does. Um, and so I think the fact is is that you have to just do it, and you have to do it well. Um, and it is about collaboration uh, and and compromise in some ways. Uh, the where we go wrong is when uh, we put things like who gets the credit for this
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh who gets the credit for the next big idea or for doing something ahead of what a community's goal is um we all would benefit from a little dose of servant leadership mindset hmm. um and say listen let's look at our data and have an honest conversation about what our goals are uh what our community needs And let's find some ways that we have to move forward. And that might mean your pet project doesn't get funded for a while. That might mean that you have to work your tail off on something at the end of the day, you didn't get the press conference or the parade. Mm -hmm. Um, But it it means that collectively overall, we're we're doing much, much better. Um, Don't try to go it alone. Um, And, and, uh, you know, actually partner with folks. And um, yeah, there's real power in setting a common goal and uh, common strategies. Um, so that would be my parting um, advice you know trust yourself go out and do it and see what happens
0: (laughs) all right well great thank you so much Dakota for coming on and sharing your wisdom with us I really enjoyed the conversation and I might have you back sometime to talk about competency-based education and maybe we together can devise (laughs) a system that others can adopt
1: that sounds great thanks for having me I'll come back anytime you want
0: All right. Thank you so much. You bet. We'll see you.